some endings are planned, carefully orchestrated for maximum effect. Daniel Day-Lewis announced his retirement from acting at the age of 60 with the release of writer-director Paul Thomas Anderson's The Phantom Thread, a movie that earned multiple Academy Award nominations, including one for Day-Lewis's performance as lead actor. Not bad for a final act, although, again, the actor's only 60 and this is his second planned retirement. Some others, like Gene Hackman, just sort of fade off into the quiet life. I'm not sure that the nonagenarian actor expected 2004's Ray Romano vehicle Welcome to Mooseport to be his final screen appearance, at least to date, but there we are. And others like the late great Cicely Tyson never stopped. She died in 2021 at the age of 96 with an unbroken string of TV, movie, and stage credits leading right to the end of her life. Her memoir was released just two days before. For someone who seemed to enjoy her work, there can't have been any better final act. And I don't know, if you gotta go, I guess you might as well go with style and doing what you love. Which brings us to today's episode, in a roundabout way, and the queen of 20th century cinematic style herself. I'm speaking, of course, about Joan Crawford. This is Swan Songs, Last Acts in Legendary Lives. Joan Crawford was born Lucille Lesueur in 19... well, 1900-somewhere or other, in San Antonio, Texas. Her father, a construction worker, abandoned the family when Joan was just a baby. But a few years later, her mom married Henry J. Casson, who ran the Ramsey Opera House in Lawton, Oklahoma. As a result, Joan had some grounding in the fine arts, but then there was an embezzlement scandal involving Casson, which saw the family essentially run out of town. She had a few attempts at schooling later, but wound up as a chorus girl in a series of traveling reviews. A producer in Detroit saw her on stage, which led to a spot in the chorus in a show called Innocent Eyes on Broadway. That was around 1924, and she may or may not have married a saxophone player named James Welton. If so, she never brought it up later. And if the long-standing rumors of her appearances in early porn films are true... They would have happened somewhere around this time. Joan later denied, of course, the existence of any such tapes, but acknowledged in her 1962 memoir that she'd been blackmailed over their existence on more than one occasion. As with so much of Joan's biography, including the exact year of her birth, that bit is shrouded in mystery. I bring it up only because it's a possible detail of her biography that I find oddly endearing. In our modern era of celebrity OnlyFans accounts and reality shows that don't skimp on the sex, Joan having a celebrity sex tape feels very modern. And while I understand why Joan wouldn't have wanted stag films in her bio, it feels to me less disgraceful than scrappy. Her childhood was rough. It was a struggle for survival for her and her family, so I'm not even remotely inclined to judge her at this point for doing whatever she felt she needed to do. Regardless of that stuff that may or may not have happened, she was approached by a publicist from Lowe's Theatres who arranged a Hollywood screen test. So on December 24th, 1924, Lucille was offered a $75 a week contract with MGM, and the rest was history. Well, actually, okay, we're not quite there yet. Her first role was as an unbilled body double for megastar Norma Shearer in 1925's Lady of the Night. And she had a handful of other small and or unbilled roles that year. 
She appears under her given name in an MGM publicity video described as the find of 1925. And it's online. You can find the clip. It's fascinating to see Joan Crawford before she was Joan Crawford. Um, when she was just an up, up and coming star, it's really interesting as a bit of history. But Joan decided to dance her way to greater success. She joined in all these dance competitions whenever she wasn't working, which I guess was a pretty good way to boost your profile in the 1920s, and it sort of worked. Um, around this time, in the maybe fraudulent book Conversations with Joan by Roy Newquist, Joan describes MGM publicity had Pete Smith deciding that the name Lucille Lesseur sounded alternately fake, like the kind of name you'd make up if you wanted to sound like a star, and also a name that would inevitably remind people of sewers. <laughs> so I don't know if that story is uh, 100% accurate, but I think it absolutely makes sense. Joan Arden was floated around as a stage name um, before everyone landed on Joan Crawford. She wound up as a co-lead in Sally, Irene, and Mary with another then top star, Constance Bennett, before really taking off with Our Dancing Daughters in 1928. It was this saucy mega hit full of raucous dancing, plenty of booze, because this was the Prohibition era, of course. In the movie, she plays dangerous Diana Medford, a flamboyant and popular young woman who's secretly the moral compass of her friend set. It's a really great role for young Joan because she gets to have her cake and eat it too. She gets to do all the wild 20s prohibition era style stuff, but also be the idealistic one, the, the, the good girl among her friends. F. Scott Fitzgerald, who chronicled the era with his definitive novel, The Great Gatsby, said of her, Joan Crawford is doubtless the best example of the flapper, the girl you see in smart nightclubs, gowned to the apex of sophistication, toying iced glasses with a remote, faintly bitter expression, dancing deliciously, laughing a great deal with wide, hurt eyes, young things with a talent for living. If you wanted to be a poster child from that era, an endorsement from F. Scott Fitzgerald might just do the trick. For a time, she was the 1920s. The flappiest flapper. I don't know, I'll work on that. But, you know, you get the idea. A year later, she eloped with Hollywood royalty. This was Douglas Fairbanks Jr., the son of Douglas Fairbanks Sr., and the stepson of Mary Pickford. And they were one of the movie's first and greatest power couples of all time. They were both huge stars, as well as being smart business people who were among the founders of both United Artists Studios and the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, the people who do the Oscars. The two had this 18-acre estate that the press started calling Pickfair, and that Life magazine described as a gathering place only slightly less important than the White House and much more fun. However deep the feelings between Joan and Fairbanks Jr. ran, there were certainly worse ways for her to solidify her standing as an up-and-comer. She had a string of hits and moderate successes leading into 1932, when she took third billing in Grand Hotel, a luxuriant all-star production that saw her share the screen with some of the most popular and accomplished actors of the era. John and Lionel Barrymore, Wallace Beery, Gene Hirschholt, and of course, the great Greta Garbo, though the two don't share any screen time. 
You know, I've often wondered what had happened to that old porter if somebody jumped on him from here. I'm sure I don't know. Why don't you try it and find out? Thanks very much. Not at all. It was a massive success, and also won the Academy Award for Best Picture in just the fifth year of the ceremonies. It was a favorite of mine, and a reminder to fans who best know Joan from Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, or even something like Mildred Pierce, that Joan wasn't always the carefully crafted and sculpted sort of drag persona of her middle age. She was once effortlessly hot and genuinely sort of naturalistic as an actress. That's not casting any shade on Joan's later roles, the ones that made her iconic, but it's certainly best to remember that she reinvented herself any number of times. We tend to have one vision of Joan in our collective heads. Don't fuck with me, fellas! And, of course... No more hangers! But she was more than Faye Dunaway's take on her in Mommy Dearest, and you don't get to be a legend by hitting the same notes over and over for 40-plus years. What if he was a burglar? They don't kill a man for that? Oh, he was desperate. He was? Yes. He tried to raise money all day, and he laughed. Poor devil. And a man like Prising has to kill him. You know, I didn't like Prising right off. Why did you have anything to do with him? Money. <gasps> money. You don't understand that, do you? Oh, yes, I do. Do you really? Yes, I do. Grand Hotel, I think, also taught Joan something that was of use to her later, which is the idea that it's better to be a secondary player in a great movie than a lead in a bad movie. When Stephen Sondheim needed a piece to replace a song that wasn't working for his musical Follies in 1971, he turned to Joan's long career for inspiration. Stage and screen actress turned Lily Munster, Yvonne DiCarlo, was the first to sing I'm Still Here, which has become a standard among the tough old broads of show business. Of Joan, then at the very tail end of her career, Sondheim said, She started as a silent film star, then she became a sound star, and she eventually became superannuated and started to do camp movies. She became a joke on and of herself, but she survived. I'm Still Here has been sung memorably by Eartha Kitt, Barbara Streisand, Ann Miller, Shirley Bassey, Shirley MacLaine, Carol Burnett, and Elaine Stritch, who said that an actress has only earned the right to perform the song once they reach 80. Which Joan never did. Her career continued to rise through the 1930s until her popularity began to wane at the end of that decade as audiences started to eschew the box office poison as they were called, of established stars in favor of new faces. That was 1938, and a couple of box office failures might have signaled a permanent decline in her career, which was the fate of several other major stars who'd survived into the sound era, only to begin aging out by the end of the Depression. She was back just a year later, though, with the now-iconic George Cukor classic, The Women, it's, which is a sly, bitchy really pretty spectacular comedy that takes its title literally. There's not a man in sight. Even among the animal actors in the movie, uh, males need not have applied. Hey, what happened to the hot date you had on for tonight, darling? He's hotter than ever, dear. I'm having him dine at my place. 
about time he found out I was a home girl. Home girl? <laughs> Get her. Why don't you borrow the quintuplets for thee? Because I'm all the baby he wants, Pitt. And again, this was another case where Joan took a secondary role in a great movie and it really paid off for her. It didn't quite put her back on top, but the movie's success bought her time. A couple of years later, she ended her nearly 20-year-long contract with MGM and set sail for Warner Brothers. In an era, and at an age, where an actress nearing 40 might have been seen as ancient, luckily, ageism does not exist in Hollywood anymore, of course, so that's not a problem for anyone. But here Joan was kind of just getting started, actually. A name gasped in the night. The one last word of a dying man. But one word that tells a thousand stories of a woman who left her mark on every man she met. How long has this been going on? Monty's going to divorce you and marry me. And there's nothing you can do about it. You think because you've made a little money you can get yourself a new hair doing some expensive clothes and turn yourself into a lady. But you can't. Because you'll never be anything but a common f- For many a Hollywood actress, then and now, there's this moment of graduating into mom roles, right? And it's not always done willingly, but it very often beats the alternative, which is oblivion. So if you got to start doing mom parts, Mildred Pierce is the way to do it. It's this fascinating and very entertaining blend of melodrama and film noir. Michael Curtiz directed the 1945 film based on a book by the king of hard-boiled crime, James M. Cain. And noir is full of tough women, right? And Mildred is certainly that. But she's also tender and even fragile. She plays the title's scrappy single mother, trying to provide a life and maintain a lifestyle for her spoiled daughter, Veda, played by Anne Blythe. The movie flips the typical dynamics of the genre, with Veda playing the sort of femme fatale against Mildred, who's constantly drawn under and suckered in by her daughter's demands and expectations. Instead of a doomed love affair, as you might get in other noir movies, we get this doomed mother-daughter relationship, and it's wholly unique on that level. The movie was nominated for Best Picture, Screenplay, and Black and White Cinematography, while Blythe was nominated for Best Supporting Actress alongside co-star Eve Arden. Only one Oscar went home with someone associated with the film that night, though, and it was to Joan for Best Actress. It was her first nomination after 20-plus years in the business at this point, and her only win. The rap on Joan is often that she's more of a screen presence than an actress, but Mildred Pierce proves that that's not fair, at least not entirely. And, as far as I'm concerned, it's kind of a pointless distinction anyway. Mildred Pierce gave her career a shot in the arm, one which she absolutely capitalized on. She next appeared in Humoresque with John Garfield. It was a modest box office success with solid reviews. For Possessed, the year after that, she received another Oscar nomination. There was a gradual decline in the quality of scripts from then on, though, uh, which led to her request to be released from her Warner Brothers contract in 1952, which was another smart move. She then appeared in the thriller Sudden Fear with Jack Palance that same year for RKO, earning yet another Academy Award nomination. She worked steadily for the rest of the decade, appearing in a handful of decent movies, but not many that get a ton of replay. The exception is Johnny Guitar, 
Now a cult classic from director Nicholas Ray, with Joan cast as a tougher-than-shit saloon keeper fighting to hold on to power in her bumfuck Arizona cattle town. whiskey and cards. All you can buy off these stairs is a bullet in the head. Now which do you want? Mercedes McCambridge plays her rival, Emma Small, and the chemistry between the two is electric. They did not get along in real life, or at least Joan made it clear that she didn't care for McCambridge. But that intensity plays on the screen as one of the great love-hate relationships in motion picture history. They either want to kill each other, or fuck, and probably both. It's a very rare moment for women in the whole of the Western genre, and the queer subtext means that it plays as well now as it ever did, if not better. American audiences didn't care much, but Europeans were into it. Jean-Luc Godard and Francois Truffaut wrote approvingly of it in Cahier de Cinéma, which is the now legendary journal of cinema in France. This could have been the beginning of Joan's arthouse phase, but I'm not sure that would have interested her. Even though she was never particularly political, her loyalties shifting largely depending on who she was married to at any given time, she was entering an elder stateswoman phase, and one with slightly more conservative tastes. After Marilyn Monroe's entrance to a photoplay awards dinner in 1953 caused a stir, Joan was livid, quoted as saying, among other things, The publicity has gone too far, and apparently Miss Monroe is making the mistake of believing her publicity. Someone should make her see the light. She should be told that the public like provocative, feminine personalities. But it also likes to know that underneath it all, the actresses are ladies. That's not the nicest way to put things, but she might have had a point. Monroe did soften the all-sex, all-the-time image she'd been cultivating around that time, and the result were some of her biggest successes in movies like Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and How to Marry a Millionaire. This was the 1950s, and the one-time flapper with the sex tapes, had become a spokesperson for middle America. We've skipped a marriage or two, but around this time she married for the maybe fourth and final time to Alfred Steele, president and later chairman of the board of Pepsi-Cola, a brand that Joan would be associated with for the rest of her life. Though Steele died in 1959, just four years after they'd married, Joan continued to travel on behalf of the company, visiting factories, doing openings, and generally promoting the brand. She'd bring Pepsi everywhere she went from then on, handing it out on film sets and generally just offering it up to anyone who'd listen to her talk about it. She was elected to the board of directors as well, which made for a memorable scene in the movie Mommy Dearest. Don't fuck with me, fellas! Film work seemed to be slowing down just a bit around this time, and it might have looked like Joan was on her way to retirement. That was, of course, before... Whatever happened to baby Jane? I've written a letter to daddy. His address is heaven above. I've written... Joan plays Blanche Hudson, a disabled one-time movie star living with her psycho sister Jane, a former child star played by Betty Davis. The movie is a macabre horror thriller with a sharp sense of humor just under the surface, like just barely under the surface. And the rumored feud between Joan and Betty drove publicity. 
It's always tempting in our culture to pit strong women against each other, but in this case, the tension between the two was very real. (laughs) The movie was a smash hit, and if the initial reviews were a little mixed, it earned Academy Award nominations, elevating its reputation above that of the typical horror movie. It ignited a brief, fun, and sometimes regrettable subgenre that's sometimes called psycho-bitty horror or, a little more grossly, hagsploitation. They're movies that took aging actresses and put them into horror roles, over-the-top horror roles. So Davis would go on to star in Dead Ringer, Tallulah Bankhead in Fanatic and Die, Die, Darling, Geraldine Page in Whatever Happened to Aunt Alice, Debbie Reynolds and Shelley Winters appeared in What's the Matter with Helen, etc. Those are just a few examples. The formula typically involved casting an aging star who hadn't had a hit in some time, and just having them go around killing people for whatever reason. It's a problematic genre for that reason, but it also gave some of the great stars of Hollywood's golden age their second, third, or even fourth acts. Mommy Dearest, that 1981 Crawford biopic starring Faye Dunaway, is a thoroughly heightened Joan, as if Joan needed to be heightened, kind of plays in this genre. It's campy, but nearly plays as a horror movie, one in which Joan takes on the monster role. I'm not spending much time on Daughter Christina's memoir, on which the movie was based, it's not really in the scope of what we're talking about here, and there are some questions about how reliable Christina is as a narrator of her own story. I'll say this about the book, though. It brought parental abuse into the spotlight as very little ever had previously. And I'm also pretty sure that the hard-driving, hard-drinking, cleanliness-obsessed Joan was probably pretty tough to have as a mom. For Betty Davis, Baby Jane was the beginning of a resurgence that lasted... Until her death, really, in 1989, Betty was even nominated for an Oscar for the role, leading to one of the most brilliantly shady moments in the long rivalry, or whatever you want to call it, between the two women. Though Joan wasn't nominated and made all the right noises about being very supportive of Betty, um, she reached out to the other Best Actress nominees and offered to accept their awards for them if they were unable to attend. Geraldine Page, nominated for Sweet Bird of Youth, later said, When she mentioned about accepting the Oscar for me if I won, I said yes. Actually, I was relieved. That meant I wouldn't have to fly all the way to California or spend a lot of time looking for a new dress to wear. I was happy and honored that Joan Crawford would be doing all of that for me. Apparently going to all the trouble of showing up for the Oscars wasn't quite as exciting circa 1963 as it would be today. It must have seemed like a long shot at the time, but... This paid off for Joan. Anne Bancroft won for The Miracle Worker, not Betty Davis. And who was there to pick up the award? And the winner is Anne Bancroft in The Miracle Worker. Accepting for Anne Bancroft, Miss Joan Crawford. I mean, if you could see the clip, you could see the smile on Joan's face. Still, Joan wasn't really able to capitalize on the film's success. She was cast again against Betty in Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte from Baby Jane's director Robert Aldrich, but Joan got sick and or was harassed by Betty to the point of breakdown and was ultimately replaced with Olivia de Havilland. 
Charlotte wasn't success on the same level as Baby Jane, but it did very respectable business and earned several Oscar nominations of its own, which would put it like Baby Jane in the category of elevated horror. Joan was in a couple of William Castle horror movies around this time. They're fun and fine, but they didn't make a ton of money and certainly weren't going to be nominated for any prestigious awards. It's not like she wasn't working, though. She made a memorable appearance on Lucille Ball's The Lucy Show, playing herself. Joan's drinking, which hadn't really been a public issue up to this point, had become more pronounced, and the napkin-wrapped Pepsi bottles that she carried around, as often held 100 proof, not 80 proof, she was very specific, Smirnoff vodka, as they did Pepsi. She struggled with the rigors of a TV production, and, and a frustrated Lucy very nearly replaced her, but in the end, Joan pulled it out. She made a couple of other TV appearances, the most memorable being in an episode of Rod Serling's Twilight Zone follow-up, Night Gallery, where she plays a ruthless and rich blind woman who takes the opportunity to get a few hours of sight via an eye transplant that will rob the donor of his sight permanently. Well, I mean, obviously, because he won't have eyes, so that's why. Miss Joan Crawford, Ossie Davis, Richard Kiley, Roddy McDowell, and Barry Sullivan, starring in the Night Gallery. That was helmed by an indie director you've never heard of in his first professional job. Joan was initially horrified and probably a little insulted to find out that she'd be taking direction from this inexperienced kid, um, whose name was uh, Steven Spielberg, by the way, just in case you were curious about that. She quickly came around, though, and the two developed a friendship that included Joan teaching Spielberg to burp. So if you ever hear Steven Spielberg burping, that's where he learned that. Joan had very limited experience with the time and budget restrictions involved in TV productions and was probably a little insecure at this point about the changes in the world and in her life. Stressing out at one point over a tricky scene, Joan was crestfallen when Spielberg neglected to visit her to help as he had said he would. You have let me down. I rarely ask anyone for help, but this time I needed it, badly. I asked you last night if you could spare some time today to help me with the scene where I'm able to see. Now here it is, the end of the day, and you haven't talked to me. You know how important that moment is. If the audience doesn't buy it, then the whole picture fails, and I don't know how to do it. I'll be embarrassing to watch. You won't like me. I won't like me. It will be just a god-awful mess. So Spielberg dismissed the crew and dedicated the rest of that afternoon to Joan, promising her that they'd do whatever was necessary for her to feel comfortable with the scene, whatever the production office's demands. The shoot went over schedule, partly as a result, which was a small black mark for the young director, but he credits the experience as an education in a director's responsibility to actors, at least as much to a shoot's technical demands. The two never worked together again, but Joan followed his career approvingly until the end of her life and would send him little uh, appreciations and, and greeting cards every so often when he had a new project. Which all brings us to... Travel back with us to the beginning of time, when giant reptiles thunder defiance, and man is yet unborn. <laughs> From this nightmare world emerges a fearsome half-man, half-ape with the strength of 20 demons, trapped in a dark subterranean cavern, its frozen fury preserved in suspended animation. It comes silently screaming through the ages. This terrifying half-human monster awakens at last, 
awakens now to vent its murderous wrath on you. Now, this is a movie for which we are promised way more than we get, by the trailer anyway, which suggests this 2001-esque thriller spanning millennia. What's actually budgeted for is a more traditional and smaller scale monster movie. In the 1970s sci-fi horror film that started filming on June 30th, 1969, Joan plays Dr. Brockton. She's a straight-talking anthropologist who learns that a lone troglodyte which is like a caveman of the sort of missing link variety, is alive and living in a cave somewhere in the English countryside. She lures Trog from his den and then subdues him while the local police and townsfolk flee in terror. She's the total package here. She's a woman of science, she's stern but compassionate, and she's handy with a rifle. She's a great shot. (laughs) She also looks, frankly, amazing. I mean, sure, you know, it's not all about looks, but... Joan certainly cared about them, and for a person in her 60s, somewhere in her 60s, we don't know exactly where, who never went anywhere without a Pepsi bottle full of 100-proof vodka, she was doing better than all right in that regard. It's more than just the face, though. She has an energy and a vitality throughout the whole thing. So Dr. Brockton takes Trog back to her lab, where she bonds with the furry fella, even while she's harassed by local Sam Murdoch, who's played by Michael Goh, He's a Hammer horror staple who's probably best known today for playing Alfred in the Tim Burton and Joel Schumacher Batman movies. Here he plays this local businessman and figures that cavemen are bad for business. Plus, you know, a woman scientist? What? I mean, what? This is, we can't have that. This is wild. So he breaks in and lets Trog go and figures, like, Trog will cause enough damage that, you know, someone will kill him or lock him up and take him away. Uh, which seems to me like it would also be bad for business, but I'm not sure, you know, I don't know how great this plan was. Trog has other ideas, though. He kills three people before just beating the living shit out of Murdoch. He takes a girl back to his cave, Frankenstein style, and the whole thing builds to an unsurprisingly tragic ending, at least for Trog. Dr. Brockton fearlessly runs into the cave, while once again the local authorities and townsfolk kind of just hang out, being scared, and she rescues the girl. She's not able to save her furry pal, Trog, though. John Waters, in a 2015 interview with Vice Magazine, said of it, Trog is a howler, but it wasn't made to be funny. It's Joan Crawford's last film, and it's totally heartbreaking to see her doing serious acting with a man in a monkey suit pretending to be a troglodyte. And some people say it's the worst film ever made. Of course, it's not. The worst films ever made aren't funny. They're just tedious. That's the tyranny of good taste. He raises an interesting point. Is it heartbreaking to see Joan doing this kind of work at the end of an illustrious career? I'm not so sure. It's more impressive to me that she can make anything at all of dialogue that mostly involves her saying trog endlessly for 90 minutes. I guess it's a little sad. True, but it's also impressive. Even given 60 plus years of eh, sometimes rough living, Joan is still willing to give it her all here. It makes me think of that bit with Steven Spielberg where she was in tears because she wanted to get a five-second scene in a TV show just right. Was she lonely at this point in her life and and needy? Certainly, I think that's absolutely true. 
But if her work was all she had, she was going to do it right with a perfectionism that never left her. So maybe it's sad, but I'm more impressed that she was giving her all even at this late stage in the day. And the resulting movie isn't brilliant, it's not full of hidden depths or anything like that, but it's competently made, it's surprisingly well acted, and ultimately it's just kind of fun to watch. You know, Susan Sontag once called camp failed seriousness, which is a definition that gets banded around a lot, and it's one I don't 100% agree with. But here you have Joan Crawford playing it 100% straight as a caveman scientist. And if that's not camp, I don't know what is. The question is then, of course, why Trog? Why this no-budget monster movie with a title that makes very clear that it's going to be a no-budget monster movie? Why did legendary legend Joan Crawford feel like she needed to do it? Did she just have such a drive to work? I mean, I think we secretly love the idea that Joan's very dramatic life would end on this sad, tragic note. And the details here are always embroidered in the telling to make it sound extra depressing. Joan had to change in her car, is one that's often repeated. She had to bring her own clothes. Uh, The car thing is totally untrue, according to the producer. And the idea of using her own clothes was Joan's. She owned a piece of the movie and didn't want to spend extra money on wardrobe when she had a ton of clothes. Director Freddie Francis, better known for his work as a camera operator and cinematographer for greats like John Huston, Powell and Pressburger, David Lynch, described Joan as a sad old lady who couldn't remember her lines. But her co-star Joe Cornelius, who played Trog, found her an absolute pleasure to work with, never saw her needing cue cards, and never noticed her visibly drunk. She was apparently always giving gifts to the crew, and she sent Cornelius Christmas cards every single year. Joan had worked with Trog's producer Herman Cohen previously, and he described her as a lonely but very professional actress, even if her drinking was a little more pronounced during the filming of Trog than it had been previously. The movie came in on time and under budget. Everyone thought that her husband's death would have left this wealthy woman even wealthier. But in fact, Steele died with a lot of debt that Joan was then saddled with. I don't get the sense that she was a wild spender, and she actually might have been kind of cheap. But one does get accustomed to a movie star lifestyle, or so I've heard, I'd love to find out. She earned an annual salary of something like $50,000 from the Pepsi board for doing her promotions and things like that. But given her Manhattan apartment and her husband's debt, it just wasn't quite enough. Still, I think she mostly just liked working. I think she liked the company and the activity. And she treated these horror movies that she was doing at the end of her life with the seriousness of any other role she's ever taken. Following Trog, she did a couple more television appearances and made a few more very well-attended public appearances before she sort of dropped out of the public eye in 1974. She died a little less than two years later on May 10th, 1977, at the age of, well, a lady never tells. In a 1992 interview with Fangoria magazine, Herman Cohen relays a story about her asking the producer to pick her up for the studio one morning, even though she had a car and driver assigned to her. She sort of mumbled something about some kind of mechanical problem with the Rolls-Royce. But Cohen later learned that one of the prop men had to have several teeth extracted. 
so she sent her car to pick him up, wait for him, and then drive him home. Once that was done, she sent the car to Soho to pick up chicken soup to deliver to the guy's house. It's the kind of thing a lot of her friends and co-workers knew her for, and it provides an interesting contrast to some of our other, other images of Joan. I don't know if it's saintly exactly to send the Rolls Royce that's been assigned to you to take you to the studio to pick someone up and take them to the dentist, but it was thoughtful, and it was the kind of thing that she was known for by a lot of people. I know I said I wasn't going to spend much time on Mommy Dearest, but it's hard not to come back to it because it looms so large in our public perception of who Joan Crawford is. So was Joan the monster of Mommy Dearest? Or was she the thoughtful, slightly sad and lonely woman who never forgot a Christmas card and was always bringing little gifts to people on the set? I mean, like most people, I'm sure she was neither. And I'm sure she was both. In the story of Joan Crawford, there's the story of a woman with a very tough childhood who rose to the height of fame and paying a price along the way. I think there is room to have empathy for Christina Crawford and the difficult child she had as Joan's daughter. And I think there's also room to have empathy for Joan, who in a three-act life had a stellar middle act. The first and third acts, eh, a little more troubling. Here was a woman abandoned by her father, then by the stepfather whom she loved and had believed was her father. She was sent off to a boarding school that her mom couldn't really afford, where Joan had to work off her own education in conditions that were pretty clearly abusive, which is probably where she learned to do whatever it would take to please the harshest critics. In the early days of her film career, she changed her accent, she even changed her laugh. She reinvented herself numerous times throughout her career without ever losing the Joan Crawfordness of it all. If there's any way to sum up a personality like Joan's, it's probably with this reflection from playwright and MGM screenwriter Frederica Sager Mass, who said of her, No one decided to make Joan Crawford a star. Joan Crawford became a star because Joan Crawford decided to become a star. This has been Swan Songs. Last acts in legendary lives. The show has been written, produced, and edited by me, Ross Johnson, and I also did the incidental music. Joseph Barsha played the part of F. Scott Fitzgerald, Heather Zykowski was Geraldine Page, and Michael Willick was Stephen Sondheim. Thank you so, so much for listening, and we'd be extra, extra grateful if you'd consider rating and reviewing us on your pod listening app of choice. It really does make a huge difference. You can also check us out on Instagram at swansongspod or swansongspod.com for more information and sources. We'll be back soon with more swan songs.